few weeks ago, um, one of my sons, Luke, he's, he's five years old, he said, Dad, last night I had a dream that I left the earth. And I was like, whoa, buddy, where did you go? And uh, his twin brother, Sam, chimed in really quick and said, I think he went to college. I'm not going to try to attempt what they think, uh, to interpret what they think college is, all right? Um, in our culture, we don't really put a lot of weight on dreams. We don't usually try to really interpret their meaning, okay? We chalk it up to subconscious or maybe to something we ate right before we went to bed, something like that. But throughout Scripture, God actually uses dreams as a powerful form of communication to speak to humanity. He reveals so much about himself through dreams all the way throughout Scripture. That's the setting that we're looking at today in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, we have King Nebuchadnezzar, the king over the most powerful empire in the world at the time. The emperor of Babylon, the king of Babylon, has a dream. And it says it troubles him, it disturbs him, and he knows deep down inside there is mystery hidden in this dream and he needs to know what it means daniel chapter 2 that's where we're at today over these several weeks we're going to be studying uh this book of daniel this powerful book that speaks timely wisdom to us right now inspired wisdom to us about what it means to navigate the culture that we're in right now a timeless book that speaks very timely wisdom to us. Last week in Daniel chapter 1, we learned a little bit about King Nebuchadnezzar and the scenario of this book. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar, as he said, is the king over the, over the empire of Babylon. And in, his first, in the first year of his reign, he attacks Jerusalem and takes over Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is at the heart of the promised land that God gave to his people. Jerusalem is the capital city where David's throne was, the king, David. That was where he established the capital city, so it had that meaning. Jerusalem was the home of the temple that David's son, King Solomon, built as this home, this dwelling place for God Almighty among his people. Jerusalem is in the heart of the land that God had promised to his people through Abraham, through Moses, all the way throughout their history. It was this symbol of God's faithfulness to them and of their identity as his people. But over time, they continually broke their covenant with him, even though he never broke his covenant. He was always faithful, unswerving, unchanging in his love. He was always faithful. But their disobedience, they walked away from him and walked themselves right into this moment of being overtaken by Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar takes into captivity some of the cream of the crop there. He goes into the royal line and takes some of the young men from the royal line of David, takes them into captivity to be servants in his government. He's going to retrain them and raise them up to be leaders in his government, another way that he is just mocking them with this victory over them. I'm taking your best and brightest and they're going to work for me now. This is what he's doing. He changes their names, gives them a new narrative, we said, tries to give them a new narrative through that. But through the course of this, we follow the story of four young men, Daniel, his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the way that they are faithful to God. They don't lose their faith and their trust 
in God. As King Nebuchadnezzar tries to raise them up and train them to be leaders, part of that is he feeds them from his own table, the choice wine, the choice food from the king's table. But David, under, Daniel, understands. I'm probably going to say that like five times, all right? If I do, just shout out Daniel, okay? Um, Daniel and his friends understand that the table is a powerful symbol of alignment. The table is a powerful symbol of alignment. We all learn this as early as middle school, right? That the table that you sit at, a lot of times you get associated with that group of people. That becomes a part of your identity. That's who you are. The table is a symbol of alignment. So if you sit at the table with the most loved, the most honored, the most respected in society, then most likely you will be well-loved well-respected, and well-honored because of your association with them. But Jesus shows us through his ministry, as he uses the table as a symbol of his alignment, he shows us that if, with the heart of God, you align yourself with the rejected, with the forgotten, with the marginalized, with the misunderstood in society, then you will be rejected, and you will be forgotten, and you will be misunderstood and marginalized. All throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see him doing this intentionally, and that's one of the greatest complaints against Jesus. In Luke chapter 15, they say, but look at him. He sits and he eats with sinners, and he treats them as if they were old friends. I pray that that's the critique we get. I pray that's the critique we get. It's a risky prayer, but I pray that. This isn't metaphor that Jesus is talking about. These were real people, real people that he aligned himself with, and it cost him. But that's the heart of God, and he shows that to us. Daniel shows us that he gets that, that the table is this symbol of alignment, and he refuses to eat from the king's table. Daniel and his friends, they refuse to eat. It says they resolve in their heart, mind, soul, and strength that their appetite and their affections will be set on something deeper and set on someone else. They align themselves with the table of their true king. And they go into a period of fasting. While the rest of the people around them are feasting, they go into a period of fasting. They say, we're going to only eat vegetables and drink water as a sign of our allegiance. To show who our first allegiance is to. It's a quiet act quiet act of civil disobedience. It's a demonstration and a protest that says, my highest allegiance is to another kingdom and to another king. And they risk it in doing that. And it shows us where their heart is. We're being challenged as a church. Over the past summer, we felt like God was challenging us with this phrase, wait on the Holy Spirit. This command taken straight from the mouth of Jesus, wait on the Holy Spirit. That's what he tells his disciples to do before the Holy Spirit is poured out on them in Pentecost. Now we feel like he's transitioning us into a different time where he's challenging us to fast and to pray. To fast and to pray. It's easy for us to want to run ahead into the book of Daniel and look at these powerful moments of the fiery furnace story or the lion's den story and say, well, we want to live in some of those big, bold, brave kind of moments. But God says, you've got to begin with getting your alignment right. Align yourself with me. Your appetite, your affections, what are you truly 
hungering for. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to continue to direct us in what that means for us. I want to challenge you to choose one thing in your life that you're going to fast from. It might have to do with food. It might have nothing to do with food. But something in your life that you are going to fast from, you're going to step back from. And every time you want to reach for that thing, you'll be reminded, wait a minute, my affection is set somewhere else. My my appetite is directed somewhere else. And I'm more hungry for God than I am for that thing. And through that, he will begin to reorient our hearts. We're going to pray for that. That's where the strength and the courage of Daniel and his three friends come from. It's not because of them and their talents. It's because they're rooted It's because they've recognized they have to be utterly dependent on God. And out of that flows all of these other moments. That's where we're at in the story. In Daniel chapter 2, as the story continues, so that's what happens in the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And uh, sometime in the second year of his reign, here's what it tells us in chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled And he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. You get that? Not just to tell them, hey, make sense of my dream. But he's saying, I want you to come in and to tell me what I dreamed. I want you to read my mind and tell me what it is that I have dreamed about. When they came in and they stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me. And I want to know what it means. The astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. That's what you pay us to do. That's why we're here. That's why we're in this place of honor is to do this for you. So you tell it to us and we'll interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers. This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, then I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. You thought your boss was tough to work for, all right? Once more, they replied, let the king tell the servants the dream. And then we will interpret it. The king answered, I'm certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. But if you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is not a person on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. Hang on to this right here. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. They do not live among humans. This week, this grabbed my heart for the first time. I've never seen this in my life. This grabbed my heart for the first time. This phrase, this statement that they make. 
No one can do what you're asking except the gods. And everyone knows, everyone understands, the gods do not live among us humans. The gods are enthroned in their temples. The gods are enthroned in their altars. The gods are in the heavens. We understand the gods do not live among us humans. This is 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And in the words of these astrologers and enchanters and magicians, we can hear a deep spiritual longing for the arrival of a God who would live among humans. Christianity is remarkable. Christianity is remarkable. Because it says that God doesn't just say, hey, you find your way to me. God steps into the story. As we say over and over again here, the author becomes the protagonist. He steps into the story. He becomes human, fully God, absolutely, and fully human. Fully human. What kind of God would do that? What kind of God? We can hear the echo of the hunger for this. And the understanding, this just doesn't happen. Just doesn't happen. Our kids love this book. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Over the past seven years, every single child who's been dedicated at Love Chapel Hill, Derek and April Hastings, our family life pastors, have given that family and given that child this Bible as a gift. This is such a beautiful, beautiful book. It's a beautiful book. It's by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And the, the, the key thing that runs all the way through this is she tells the Bible stories, Old Testament into New Testament. But in every single story and on every single page, she talks about the way that this whole story has been whispering the name of Jesus from the very beginning. I love it. She has this phrase she uses from time to time. Every story whispers his name. Every story whispers his name. That is the reality of Jesus. Every time we read this with our kids, it just grabs us. It, just, it grabs my heart. Every story whispers his name. From the beginning, this story has been about him. It's been about him. Reading scripture is like looking at the rings of an oak tree. If you look at the rings of an oak tree and you examine the pattern of growth, what you see are, are the small rings. And it's it's this pattern that it gets repeated over and over and over. Right. It seems like it's the same thing over and over again. The same theme repeated. But every single time there's an expansion. Every single time the ring gets wider and the roots get deeper. That's what it's like reading scripture. You see the same themes over and over again, but every single time it's expanding the heart and the roots are reaching even deeper. And all throughout this book, you can hear the longing for the arrival of Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. So the king gives this command. The people push back against it, but it's final. What the king has said Stands And so the word goes out to all of the king's servants. The king's going to 
get rid of everyone. The king is going to kill everyone because there's no possible way for us to know what he dreamed and then be able to interpret it. Word reaches back to Daniel. And I love this. It says, Daniel speaks with wisdom and tact. Daniel speaks with wisdom and tact. The king is in a rage, right? The magicians are in a panic, and yet Daniel speaks with wisdom and tact. There's this inner strength of peace about Daniel, even in the midst of this chaos around him. We need some wisdom and tact in our speech right about now. Resisting, posting every single thought we have and just blasting people and declaring the end of the world. We need some wisdom and tact. While some are raging, while others are panicking, as followers of Jesus, we are rooted in peace. We are rooted in peace. Daniel speaks with wisdom and tact, it says, and he says, give us some time. Ask the king to give me time. He goes back to his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He pulls them together, and he says, plead to God for mercy. Pray together. Pray with me on this. We can't go this alone. We need those people around us who are pouring into us, who are carrying this burden with us as part of what Christianity means. It's intensely personal, but it's also intentionally communal at the same time. Pray with me. Walk through this with me, he says. They all pray together. And it says that God reveals to Daniel the mystery. God reveals the mystery to Daniel. He goes back to King Nebuchadnezzar and he says, King, I can tell you what you dreamed and I can interpret it for you. And the king says, all right, tell me, tell me what you have to say. And Daniel makes this incredible statement. He says this, the truth is no one on earth could do what you're asking, but there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven who is the revealer of mysteries, and he has revealed this mystery to me so that I can share it with you. There is a God in heaven. He goes on to tell him the dream. He says, as you were laying there that night, your mind turned towards the future, and you drifted off into a dream. And in your dream, you saw a dazzling statue it said, dazzling and awesome in appearance and an enormous statue. And as you looked closely, what you saw was this. At the top of the statue, there was a head that was made of pure gold. Next, you saw the chest and the arms of the statue that was made of silver. Next, you saw the waist and the thighs of the statue that was made of bronze. After that, you saw the legs of the statue that were made of iron. And finally, the feet of the statue that were made of a mix of iron and clay. Anybody confused yet? All right, you can see why he might have been troubled by this dream, right? And he says, here's the thing, Nebuchadnezzar. Each one of those sections of the statue represents a kingdom. Each kingdom growing less in its glory. And you, King Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of that statue. You are the head of gold on that statue. Can you imagine what this meant to him? Like how excited King Nebuchadnezzar would have been to hear this. This is incredible news. And then he says, but then you saw something else. You saw a rock being cut out. And that rock was not cut out by human hands. And what you saw next was that the rock was thrown at the statue 
And as it struck the statue, the statue, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the iron and clay, all of it, the statue shattered into dust. And the dust was blown away. Daniel says it was like the chaff of wheat that is blown away on the threshing floor on a summer day. Gone. And he says there was no trace left of the statue. And what you saw next was that rock that had destroyed the statue then began to grow. It grew into a mighty mountain. And then that mighty mountain continued to grow until it filled the entire earth. This is your dream. And this is what it means. It means this. There is one kingdom that is above every kingdom. And it is the kingdom of God. He is the rock on which it is all built. He is the mountain of glory that fills the entire earth. There is one kingdom. There is one kingdom. I'm going to ask the worship band to come on back up. Because as we transition into this next part of the message, in this end part of the message, there's only one response for us in this moment. And that is to continue to worship. The only response we can have in this moment is to worship, is to, is to lift him up. So I'm going to ask the band to come on up and start to lead us. This dream of Nebuchadnezzar's was designed to shock his system. All right? You get that? It was designed to shock his system and in a radical way to reorient his entire understanding of the world around him. To show him there is one kingdom. You might have built a mighty empire here under your name. But there's one kingdom and there's one name that is above every name. And it's the name of Yahweh. Remember, this is Daniel speaking this to him. Daniel, who's a captive, who had been conquered and taken into captivity. And he said, you thought that you had defeated us. But here we are in your land and God still reigns even over your kingdom. There is a God in heaven. He says, there is a God in heaven. He is the rock and he is the mountain and it fills the entire earth. This dream was designed to shock his system, but it's also designed to shock ours, to shock us back to our senses and to begin to help us realize the reality of the world. There is one king, there is one kingdom, and he is above everything else. It is saying to the Nebuchadnezzar within us, and to the Nebuchadnezzar around us, there is one who has the final say. There's one who has the final say, and it's Yahweh. There is a God in heaven. There is a kingdom that was before yours. There is a kingdom that will be after yours. And it is greater than any empire that has ever been seen in this world. He is the unshakable rock. He is the unshakable rock. And his name is mighty God, Yahweh. He fills every corner of the entire earth. This is a reminder that if your source of strength is not in Jesus, then your source of strength is your weakness. If your source of strength is not in Jesus, your source of strength is weakness. And it will be exposed. It will be exposed. When the world begins to shake around you, when you experience that disruption in your life, it will be made painfully clear.
that your source of strength has been a weakness. It will be revealed that what you trusted in was a sham and a shadow and a shell of empty hope. There is one God. There is one kingdom and he is above it all. But if your life is built on the rock, as Jesus told us, if your life is built on the rock, then there is nothing that can shake your life. There is nothing that can come against you that will shake your life. That's the reality. That's the reality. There is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. There might be war around the world, but there is a God in heaven. There might be violence in our communities, but there is a God in heaven. There might be racial injustice beneath the surface and out in the open, but there is a God in heaven. There might be economic injustice, but there is a God in heaven who is above it all. There might be sickness, there might be betrayal, there might be oppression, there might be loneliness, there might be grief, there might be uncertainty, and there might be turmoil in your life, but there is a God in heaven, and He is your hope. So as we look at the world around us, as we look at the time that we've been given, we are not afraid. We are not afraid. Some are raging. Some are panicking. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we are at at peace. We find ourselves with this odd kind of counterintuitive kind of peace. Where does it come from? It comes from the fact, the truth, the bedrock core belief. There is a God in heaven. He is the true God. He is above it all. He is a mighty mountain. He filled the entire earth. And sometimes what we need to have happen to us is to have our system shocked. To bring us into this place of of reoriented understanding of that ultimate reality. He is God. And we are His. That's our hope.